Welcome to the Riot Woman podcast, which features creative conversations with artists, academics, and activists who identified with or were influenced by the punk and riot girl subcultures. I'm your host, Eleanor Callett Whitney, a feminist, writer, and marketer based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of the forthcoming book, Riot Woman, a collection of memoir-infused essays about how Riot Girl has shaped my life. On this show, I'll be talking with a diverse range of guests and invite them to reflect on how punk, feminism, and the do-it-yourself spirit has impacted their adult lives and the work they make. In this episode, I catch up with Nicole J. Georges, a writer, illustrator, podcaster, and professor, among many other things. She is the author of the award-winning graphic novels Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home, and Calling Dr. Laura. She also teaches at California College for the Arts and is the host of the podcast Sagittarian Matters. Like me, Nicole has been making zines for over 20 years. Nicole and I first met in the early 2000s when we both lived in Portland, Oregon, where we helped organize the Portland Zine Symposium. For our conversation, we were joined by producer and Instagram influencer Ponyo Georges, a delightful Chomeranian. Together we discuss rock camp for girls, grunge as a gateway to punk, being part of a subculture in a small town, becoming intentional about what we do for fun and what we do for money, how getting paid for your art is a class issue, zines and intersectional feminism, and healing from punk damage. Enjoy my conversation with Nicole. Did you identify as a riot girl? What? She was not talking about. Oh. Well, she, she's young. She's too young, I she's, think. She's a millennial. <laughs> are, are we both millennials? I mean, there's a lot of debate. There's like, it's like, on uh, some scales, technically, but I don't identify that way. Same. Yeah, so this podcast is looking at people who identify as punks or riot girls uh, or did at one point or were influenced by it and kind of taking stock of where they are now, how it's influenced who they've become as an adult, artists, musicians, activists, things like that. So we're starting a riot. So here with Nicole Georges, who is host of Sagittarian Matters podcast and the author of Fetch and Calling Dr. Loyera. Whoa. Calling Dr. Loyera. <laughs> I live in New York for almost 20 years now. I'm sorry. You're like Native Madonna coming back from England. <laughs> Dr. Laura. <laughs> yeah, so especially given that uh, there's a lot of attention on like the 90s and uh, Riot Girl, also, especially as we see reunions with bands like Bikini Kill, I'm just interested to talk about uh, that scene and people who are influenced by it and sort of where they find themselves now. Yeah. Why don't, before we dive in, if there's anyone who doesn't know you who's listening at home, could you just introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Hi, I'm Nicole. I'm a graphic novelist, a zinester slash former zinester. I teach comics to MFA students at California College of the Arts. I do Sagittarian Matters. I have a dog. I'm vegan. I'm queer. I don't know. That's perfect. That's me. That's perfect. There's all I have. My dog has a bumping Instagram account. Oh, that's right. Significantly more followers than me or most of the people I know. And she's here. Wow. Right now. So we are in the presence of a real live celebrity who is burritoed in a blanket. She's from a different generation. And so we're having an intergenerational conversation right now. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's something we can talk about is just how people... Um, identify with feminism or punk feminism differently depending on generational identities. Yeah, I mean, using my really weird version, my dog being the entree to this, I just want to put a pin in the idea of the rock and roll camp for girls having had a really significant impact on a group of young people based on, like, Riot Girls trickle-down effect. Yeah. As a bunch of young girls with no third-wave feminist affiliation actually finding feminism and a voice and amplifying their voices or social change, which I thought of because my dog is seven and a half. So she could next year potentially go to rock camp. That's so exciting. Yeah. I'm excited to think about what her band will be called. 
I know. It's hard because dogs have very sensitive ears. So that's right. Actually quieter than you would think. Absolutely. And are you still involved in rock camp? Is that something that's still happening? I'm embarrassed to admit I don't know. It is still happening. Um, I've been volunteering with the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls since the first year, which was 2001 in Portland, Oregon, when it was a capstone project. And now I spend most of my time in Los Angeles. And so I started volunteering here and it's bigger and better. That's like, so exciting. I mean, in Portland, we were doing a lot of punk workarounds based on the space that it was in when I was working there. And here, it's like, just imagine a space where you can use the bathroom indoors and where there's air conditioning. It just that makes it so much incredible. It makes it so nice. So while girls now or some girls have access to things like rock camp as well as the internet, let's uh, rewind to when you discovered punk and Riot Girl. How did that happen for you and what kind of appealed to you about it? Well, I have to tell you something shocking. Don't kick me off the podcast right away. I'm not going to. But I was not officially a riot girl when I was a teenager. I was actually, I believed in the same things, but I was almost anti-riot girl because I was ensconced in a male-dominated punk scene where all the boys around me made fun of riot girls, went out of their way to make fun of Kathleen Hanna's voice. Girl, they'd be like, meh, 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 talking about girls. And so to kind of fit in and be cool, I was like, yeah, girls are stupid. Not really taking into account that I was not going to automatically gain male privilege by saying that. I definitely relate to that, though, because I think when I was maybe in my earlier teens, so before I discovered punk, I knew that I didn't want to be seen as like weak and, you know, yeah. And I so I didn't really know what to do. So I thought, you know, oh, if I'm like played down this association with feminism, I'll be taken more seriously. And then I think I don't know what set me right in that but I think I just realized it wasn't effective like that yeah sexism was still happening and it was probably still happening to you even though you tried to align yourself with men absolutely I've I keep bringing up for some reason this like crusty punk patch from the 90s that a lot of people had that's had a, you know a picture of a dog under a kitchen table and it said like the dog serves the master, but it still only eats the scraps. And I think of that when I think of myself as a teenager selling myself out, selling out other girls, trying to align myself with men so that I could have what they had. And I was like, no, you're still not going to get that. You're just serving somebody who's going to continue to oppress people like you and make you think they're weak or not the smart or don't deserve space and don't deserve to talk. So finding Riot girl bands, punk bands, homo core, queer core, how did I find them? I mean, Nirvana was a big thing for me. That was a big uh, introductory drug. What's that called? Gateway drug. Gateway drug. That was my introductory drug. Uh, it was grunge. And then I started going to local shows, like alternative and punk shows, based on my love of that music. I liked Hole. I learned every Hole song on guitar, in case anyone wants to hit me up for that skill. Um, I found zines through ska message boards. Ska music was my unlikely gateway to punk, to tour around punk. Whatever happened, I, I felt grateful at the time to not have gone down a goth path because it really could have gone that way. Because I was into punk and industrial. And, you know, industrial and goth are basically holding hands. So how did I skip out on Christian death? I don't know. Well, it is interesting because I feel like as a... And this was when you were living in Missouri, just to... Uh, I was living in Kansas. In Kansas. Suburban Kansas. I later moved to Kansas City, Missouri. Right. Yeah, because I was when I was growing up in Maine, it was sort of like all the subcultures mushed together in a way. So just to be alternative, like it almost wasn't a difference to be like goth or new wave or ska kid. Uh, maybe I feel bad saying this. We did make fun of the ska kids a little bit. It is easy to make fun of rude boys. Yes. Or, you know, an emo or hardcore. And it was just sort of like, oh, I'm going to like experiment with this because it's different or something. Um, but I don't think I ever really became a goth, despite Joy Division being my favorite band. It's a great band. They are a great band. But we were just all the freaks. I mean, yeah. it basically was a subculture, and it was hard to find. You know, I found zines randomly through an internet message board, like a ska digest email where people would talk to each other about, like, I saw, I listened to, I heard ska on a Denny's commercial. I heard a Blondie song that sounds kind of ska. And someone's like, I do a zine. And I was like, what's that? And everybody loved it. And I was like, I don't know what a zine is, but I'm going to send them a dollar. 
And then I got it in the mail and it was zine. And it was so bad and boring. And I was like, well, I can do this. If this guy, if this joker can do this and earn all this money, then certainly I could do something similar. So I started doing a ska zine. But that was nice because it got me kind of into punk culture as an active participant, even though I wasn't in a band. Right. Absolutely. And how did you kind of come around to feminism? Was it then through discovering more bands or was it just through living your life? Well, my fascinating trajectory would be like grunge, punk, ska, hardcore, emo, and and also um, like queercore around that time. And then I, so it wasn't the, it wasn't my scene necessarily. Um, gosh, I started working at the, fem, I started, sorry, I worked at the feminist bookstore years later. I started working at a used clothing store, very different. But I was working with a, a diverse landscape of women from my suburban Kansas perspective. People of different sizes, like grown up riot girls, women with tattoos, like strong women that weren't necessarily like in my scene, but were still were strong. And I felt like they were great role models. And they, it made me feel more feminist to be in an all-woman space because I wasn't trying to please the men. And around the same time, uh, one of my friends from the scene got sexually abused in some way by some really nice guy, some really nice blonde guy named John. And then I wrote a zine and I used his real name. This is his first, his first name's John. Who cares? Yeah. John, John, John. Everyone named John. I used his first name. I didn't use her name. And I used the f- name of my friends who had all backed him up when I said that he had abused my friend. And then they all got so mad. I was surprised. They were so mad. I used their real names and they all stopped being my friend at once. So I almost didn't have a choice of whether or not to stay with my kind of boys club friends because they kicked me out. And so then I was in like a landscape of women, my boyfriend who had some queerness to him. He was bisexual. We were both bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and but I had something before, right before then called Girl Positive, which I, but on the flyer, I said, this is not a riot girl group. It was a feminist discussion group of young women who wanted to get together and just talk about issues. But I was like, we do not hate men. This is not a riot girl group. Wow. That's an interesting, yeah, like association of riot girl equals like man hater, right? But also like, who cares? Like at this point in my life, I'm like, men are fine. You know, I could say I hate men, but a man might shed one tear, but like, they're fine. Go, go like enjoy some white male privilege somewhere and soothe yourself with like your paycheck. Or like soothe yourself by feeling safe somewhere. Go take a walk at night if you feel so sad because a woman said she didn't like you. You know, like enjoy. Seriously. (laughs) I also had a a short-lived feminist discussion. was supposed to be activist group in Portland, Maine. And we were not called Riot Girl because it was like 1998 or 1999. And it just didn't feel like I really believed in it, but I don't think people really knew about it in Maine. So it wouldn't have really drawn in people. And I think I knew it couldn't be limited to punk as well. But I think without that kind of unifying focus or like cultural touch point, it just didn't go anywhere. You know, Mm. it was not sure who we were and it was just too small. So I think, yeah, like when I moved to Portland, Oregon, I was like, this is where the feminists are. Now I'll finally find them. Well, I had an interesting thing where it was like, in Kansas City, if you wanted anything to happen, there were so few subculture people that you had to be the one doing it. So like, I basically ran Food Not Bombs for like four years, sometimes single-handedly, driving around with rotting bagels in my car, you know, in a garbage bag in the back, trying to give them to homeless people in the street. They're like, ew, I want meat. Get this bagel out of my face. And I was like, what? But, and then I had my girl positive group and I would arrange shows. If you wanted any band to come, you probably were the person that had to bring them. And moving to Portland, I felt really relaxed because there were so many other activists and subculture people there that I was like, oh, wow, I could just be a participant. I don't need to be doing all the work. And then, of course, you and I helped start the Portland Zine Symposium. So we just went ahead and did some more work. I think we were so, I mean, if I may say we here, I think we were so used to being the ones doing that work and I really relate to what you said from being from a small place um and yeah I remember my like indie rock band played with crust band Os Rotten oh my god cool on the like (laughs) something it was like an animal liberation tour I'm sure many oh was it the primate freedom tour oh I was on the primate freedom tour yes and then there were punk shows to support and promote the primate freedom right. tour along the way. Yes, yeah, so I organized one of those shows, and I <laughs> thank you for your support. You're so welcome. I felt so out of my element, but uh, all these black 
patch wearing, you know. It was a very crusty scene. It was extremely crusty. Um, and there was a lot of uh, crusties in Maine, too. I think that's where you see the uh, real Venn diagram coming together of, like, hippie and punk. Yeah, I don't know if anyone knows. If everyone doesn't know what crusty is. Yes. I'm not, I don't want to over, no, under please, assume what your listeners explain. know. Yeah. If you're a crusty punk, you're a punk who listens to kind of sludgy music that sounds kind of like metal and punk and is just really like dirty and like um, distorted. But your clothing looks like you just got off a ship, like you're shipwrecked, like you're wearing like black punk tight clothing, but you're a castaway. So like maybe you're white and you live in a home in the suburbs with fully working plumbing, but you haven't showered for years and you might just have like a patch of one dreadlock on the back of your head from just never touching your head right and like maybe you panhandle i don't know there was like a lot going on there was a lot going there's on. a dog on a hemp rope yeah maybe everything looks like like a black patch with like an obscured white screaming skeleton face that's melting and then white dental floss that has sewn it to your jacket that looks like it was like coughed up by a dragon absolutely <laughs> i always remember the white dental floss that like sticks out to me but yeah, I think like moving to Portland, well, there's a few things. I think it was a way to participate and to, I felt like, oh, now I'm going to be a West Coast like activist. I need to make a name for myself. So it was a way to do that. But it was also maybe a way to have control because I'm like a bit type A and want to feel like I have some control over what's happening and to a real desire to like do things and to see that even in a larger scene where there's a lot going on, there's still gaps like that. We felt there was all these zines and independent publications coming out of Portland, but no kind of way to bring the community together. And so I think that was like the community building impulse that came out of that. Yeah. But you did a lot of fucking work. Yeah. I want to say also, in Kansas City, I had been involved in something called the Midwest Underground Media Symposium. Yes. And so when people there, like, when the people from Microcosm said, like, we're considering starting a zine festival, or maybe you were the first one that thought of it. No, I was I like, think, I, I want to help with that. Yeah, I don't think it was my idea, because okay. I don't I don't know. Maybe everyone sort of had the same idea at the same time. But you know? I was like, oh, well, why not? Like, mums, that was what we called our thing. I was like, I just did mums, so it totally makes sense. But yeah, I did a lot of work. I love working for free. Yeah, that's part of my punk ethics. Well, so let's talk about that. So, you know, a lot of this community building work in punk and feminist communities is work for free. And a lot of it is kind of administrative work. I actually feel like I was able to parlay the administrative organizing work I did on events like the Portland Zine Symposium into my first career, which was organizing public programs at an art museum as an educator. And so I guess in a way you could say that led to like the marketing work I do now for money, but it's work for free and it's not glamorous and it's often not remunerated or appreciated. So I guess in terms of like, now we have that term emotional labor. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. If, well, very hot term. Thank God we didn't have that term then. We would just spend our whole time talking about that. I'm sorry. All the volunteers would quit at once. And they would all be yelling that word as they walked out the door. Right. They still all quit at once, but yeah. <laughs> but then they they would feel um, they would feel a different sense, I think, of entitle entitlement. Right. Like this should happen, but I'm not gonna. Anyway. So, and you were not one of those people. Like you made things happen. So, what do you think compelled you and propelled you to do that? And to continue to do that, because you still do a ton of shit. I do a ton of shit. I just, I mean, I, I just, like, I just continue to organize stuff. Like, I worked at the Independent Publishing Resource Center. I worked volunteering as, a, at a nutrition program for people with, like, AIDS. I worked, volunteered at the Senior Citizen Home doing a zine. I just did a, a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't know. I just have, like, service is one of the things. It's like an antidepressant to me. Like service, doing something outside of myself, I think somehow externalizing that saved my life as a teenager. And then I felt like I wanted to pay it forward. And certain things like the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls, not to sound like a Hallmark Channel person, but like it, it gives me, those girls give me back more than I give them. Like they're just something, it is an antidepressant to me. And I also, I want those spaces to exist. I really like being helpful. I mean, definitely as I've gotten older, 
I'm not afraid of capitalism. You know, I think there was a time when I was younger, and especially when you're adjacent to crusty communities that are actually middle class and upper middle class people just wearing tattered clothes. When you're next to those people that have a safety net and then they're like, don't ask for money because you're a tool of the man. And then I'm like, well, you can afford to say that because you have a safety net. I do not have a safety net. So at a certain point, I have my volunteer hours I'll do on purpose, but then I also am not afraid to ask for money for other things. And so as I think as I've gotten older, I have a real separation of like, it. I'm not going to do things that feel emotionally laborious. I'm doing things like for fun and for free that are for fun. And then I'm doing other things like art and I'll charge for art events. I'll charge for events. And if people complain, I'm like, sorry, you're not entitled to my entertainment for free. But like girls, young girls, uh, young queer kids, senior citizens, they are entitled to my work for free. They have whatever they want. Absolutely. I really relate to that. I left the nonprofit sector around the time I last saw you in person Mm -hmm. and switched over to working uh, in the startup world and in the tech world. And I suddenly realized like, oh, now that I'm making a living wage and my work is not my service, I can suddenly be of better service. And I realized in the decade I worked in nonprofits, I never volunteered really. I mean, I would do the zine symposium, though that was when I was still in college. I would do some things here or there, but I was so exhausted emotionally and physically from working and not being like compensated fairly for that work that I just was too burnt out. And suddenly I was like, wow, I can really be of service to my community and feel really great about that and feel like I am making a tangible difference. So, I mean, I don't like late stage capitalism, but I also don't feel that me deciding to work or not is going to, you know, really change that. Well, yeah. And I, I think I just, at a certain point, I know exactly when it was, it was when I went on tour with Sister Spit and Sister Spit had been organized by sex workers. Like it was curated by Michelle T who's a former sex worker and our tour manager had worked on the sex workers art show tour. And they brought a class lens to my life in a way that I hadn't really thought of it before. Like when I was a teenager, I was trying to like class, class war, felt like a very punk thing. And so I got like a book about it, but it was all English. It was like from England in the seventies. And I was like, I don't think this relates to my life working at Subway in Kansas, but realizing that like, it's okay to get paid for your art. It's okay to get paid for your work. And in fact, it's a class issue because who can afford to work for free, you know, affects the stuff that you're putting out and who you're including in it and the voices that are being heard. And so I think if I had to go back and do it again, I would try to find a way for us to fund the zine symposium for the people doing the most work so we could do higher quality work instead of just expecting all these people to work themselves to the bone and consistently put out a festival. Absolutely. And I wonder if in doing that, and of course hindsight's twenty twenty, if it would lead to less kind of fractured relationships and people feeling resentful because they're also trying to live their lives and like pay their rent while they're putting on this huge festival. It's weird. There's both. I feel both ways. I feel like as you were saying that, I was remembering there was like one person who was like maybe maybe a middle-class white man, perhaps, uh, who was at kind of the like treasurer of the zine symposium. No one had asked him to be. And so he, but he would like hoard the money from it. And then he would take us all out to dinner. And I remember like Muffy White, the artist formerly known as Muffy White, now known as Donna, was like, it just feels like daddy's taking us out to dinner. Because it did. It did. At the time, I was like, don't be so dramatic. But I was, it was like daddy was like, order whatever you want. And that's what you got after working for like six months for free was like a dinner at Cafe Vita with like a, you know, maybe you were getting like eight fifty worth of food or maybe $15 because you ordered dessert. I don't know. But, um, you know, like my podcast, my producer, I've really, my producer is my friend named Chris Sutton, who he's a musician from Olympia. He's been in the music scene and the punk scene. He does like an audio zine. He's probably done real zines. But I've asked him before, like, do you want to get paid consistently every week? Do I need to find a way to fund this? And he was like, I kind of like, like money's helpful when we get it, but I like the idea that I'm just doing this because I want to, and I don't want it to get weird Yeah, between us. And so people donate to him directly via PayPal. I advertise it every week. And then people donate to me separately via Patreon. And we just, for now it's okay. But sometimes I, so I wonder with the zine symposium, if it would have gotten even muddier, if there had been like four people are salaried, everyone else is not unpaid. Right. And then what does it mean if 
like more marginalized people are volunteering, but they're not in one of the paid positions. And then it's like, what is that? Absolutely. And I think something that's difficult with a lot of these kind of punk and activist projects is that we were inexperienced just in life and organizing a lot of us. So I don't even know if at that time I would have known to ask those questions. Oh, yeah, no. So I will credit, I'm not going to diss on my nonprofit experience, my experience in arts administration of getting me much better at asking those kind of questions. And even now I work with a lot of like freelancers and stuff and I'm always making sure I feel their rate is fair and it's made me a big advocate for artists in other settings and very clear about what I will and won't do for money outside of my because I do have like a salary job. So outside of my salary job. So when people yeah. are like, could you just help me with the copy for this? I'm like, no, you couldn't pay me enough to spend my free time doing that. I'm sorry. You know? Well, you know, it was actually, to bring it back to Riot Girl. Yes. An inspiration was when I worked at, I think, In Other Words, the feminist yes. bookstore in Portland. And they asked Sleater Kinney to do something for them, like play a benefit show or something. And Sleater Kinney was like, oh, sorry. Like we don't, we only donate for one group and it's rock and roll camp for girls and then it was like understandable it was like oh they're that's a boundary and they're like choosing where to put their resources so then it's easier to say like if you already have that in your head like no I'm not going to do copy I'm not going to do copy for this this and this or I'm not going to do this kind of work off the clock right whatever so I want to come around to something uh around ambition and punk because you were actually one of the first artists I knew that had a really consistent artist practice and I was really impressed because I think I can't quite remember what year this is let's say mid-2000s and you were like yes I go to my studio for these amount of hours I have these goals I get this done and I saw you doing all this other stuff in the community, and I was really, really impressed that you had that self-discipline, but also the focus and ambition that you were going to take your art somewhere and that it was supporting your life. So I'm just curious, because that can be a little antithetical to the punk uh, ethos. How did you square those two things in your mind? Hmm. Hey, thank you for saying that. I feel very seen. <laughs> Well, it's true. It, it's not easy to have to just do it. I mean, I have to say for me, it's a little bit of a compulsion, like making diary comics and then putting them out there has always been a compulsion, you know, and it may have to do with like not being seen at some point as a child or feeling like I need to record my truth and tell people so that it's not question. I don't know what, but um, I think the class thing, I think like sister spit and the class issues around that were really helpful, but also... I didn't have I didn't have any goals like I didn't I have a GED I never went to college I was never like my mom never told me I couldn't do anything but she also never encouraged me to do anything so there was never consequences so but so I never felt like oh this has to be perfect or I shouldn't put it out because I was like nothing ma the punk part that mixes with that is the nothing matters part which is like I'm gonna put it out and if people don't like it they don't like it I don't have to do it again but if people but then people liked it yeah. So I kept doing it. And then it, it became a thing too, where it was like, I just always knew I was going to have to have a job. I never thought my art was going to support me. I thought that would be great because I could do more art. But um, so I just always had jobs until my art became a little bigger. You know, also dating radio, being, being acquainted with radio, who they were in a queer core band called The Need and they had made a totally creative life for themselves. So I met this person, they had like giant fucking knuckle tattoos. I don't know if I can swear on this. You can definitely swear Great. on this. They had giant knuckle tattoos and they hadn't had a square job for like decades and they were a little older than me and they were, it was nice for them, you know, cause I was doing zines up until that point and they kind of pushed me a little bit and were like, you should get knuckle tattoos. Cause I wanted them, but I was like, this is a life ruiner. And they were like, you could, it's you dedicating yourself to your creative life. And so I think it was being around other artists that were also kind of working class that had done it and they weren't doing it like in the gallery system or in a bigger, they were just doing it in a DIY way, but they were making it work. So that helped push me forward and be like, oh, it's a class issue. Like some people can't afford the Fugazi 
thing of like $5 shows for the rest of your life while you secretly have a trust fund. Absolutely. And I think it was on your podcast with your conversation with Kathleen Hanna where she mentioned that about the DC punk scene being very, everything's a benefit show and thinking like we can't support ourselves in this very expensive city like this. Uh. But I want to say for other artists, I had like two jobs working at nonprofits and then I started getting side income from illustrations just by telling people I was an illustrator. I think that's the thing that's a little bit like you like RuPaul's like it's all drag, nothing means anything. You get to be what you want to be. I just had to say the words I'm an illustrator and then people were like, "You're an illustrator." No one came up to me with a magic wand and said, "Today's the day you can get paid for art." I just was like, I'm just going to say I do pet portraits. And then people are like, oh, you do pet portraits? Like you just had to say the thing out loud and then it is a thing. Even if you're bad at it, you still could, you don't have to be a good illustrator, you're saying you're an illustrator. But so then people started paying me for that stuff so I could quit one job and then I got paid more and I got a book contract. I was like, oh, I can quit another job. Amazing. But then I was like, I need to fucking work so that I can pay my rent because I just quit my jobs. Yeah. So it was never an option to like not do the work because then I have to pay all the money back. Right. So now you are, if I may say so, more in a position where through your podcast, through your comics, through your award-winning books, and all the projects you do, and through your work with Rock Camp, inspiring like the next generation of feminists. And as you talk with younger people or encounter them, do you find a lot of the issues are the same as the ones you went through as like a teenager or early 20s? Or do you see a shift in how young people are relating to feminism or the type of feminism they're practicing? Mm. This you, is a long question. You mean like f- like their experience with feminism and their experience with punk or what? I would say more at feminism because I if I do say so, I think your work kind of reaches far beyond punk, though mm-hmm. it's told in a punk community or like bringing your experience in this kind of punk or punk adjacent community into a wider audience so I feel you've kind of broken that barrier which I think is really interesting thank god right punk's not I mean punk's a fine neighborhood but like you don't want to stay there for your whole life you know it's like it's like like, that's where I'm from that's my hometown and like I still have my hometown banners around but like that can't be it because they won't support you because they don't want to have a job (laughs) um it's yeah it's true it's like not punk to like want nice things for yourself like going on tour being like oh I need to budget for a hotel and then people are like a hotel why don't you sleep on a floor I'm like because I'm too old to sleep on a floor it makes my body hurt okay young people I, I feel like I was intersectional I I did I feel like amongst the punks I amongst the punks I knew we were intersectional. I don't think our, the politics were perfect. I don't think they were all intersectional, but I felt that way. Like I was like into animal rights. I was like in a black power group. I would go to, <laughs> I would awesome. go to union rallies. I would like, you know, I could see how all these things were interconnected. And, you know, through those punk patches about, you know, uh, maybe it was a little sizist, the pig with the top hat stepping on the proletariat maybe that was a little sizist but I mean I even was into like you know size activism and gay stuff like I just understood the intersectionality and now the wording is different so now people have to go out of their way to say it because for me when I was a punk that was just to me assumed and especially in Riot Girl, from the zines I read that was assumed like evolution of a race riot fat so alien like things that dealt with lots of different issues and I could see they were all interconnected absolutely I feel like I credit zines like that as my education in that and I did go on to college and studied cultural studies and race ethnicity and post-colonial studies is my concentration I believe is the word that my school used but I felt like I learned all that theory through the lived stories of people who were sharing them in zines and I in music as well but I really related to zines so yes evolution of a race riot um Lauren's you might as well live and then Mm -hmm. later quantify um, but and those still remain foundational to me same and so it's I think that you know punk could always do better at least in the suburbs of Kansas and Portland Oregon could do better around race and could do better around immigration and you know things like that but I just I don't I think that for a 16 year old like Going to like a Leonard Peltier rally outside of the prison in Kansas where in Leavenworth where he was being held, like going to those. I don't, that's not for nothing. 
I th- and I think that's really formative. That's interesting. I went to a Leonard Pelletier rally in Portland, Maine, <laughs> obviously not by the prison, and it felt very abstract. And I think I got made fun of because I was saying his name Pelletier, like oh. the French way. <laughs> Leonard Pelletier. Le <laughs> also, you know, Maine is French-Canadian, so you could be... <laughs> But I also, like, I wanted to, like, free Mumia. Yeah, absolutely. I went to a Mumia uh, tribunal in Philadelphia put on by the MOVE people. But Mm -hmm. I feel like I also, you probably learned this too, I got a healthy distrust for the government. And it wasn't just from people saying, like, smash the state. It was from being, like, like, learning about MOVE and the black power movements and seeing how the FBI had worked to infiltrate them and tear them down because they posed an actual threat and a racial threat. And so then now to have feminists being like, duh, I shouldn't wear blackface. I'm like, what are... It's, it's weird. Those people are necessarily the people that are coming up to me after shows, which I think was your question. But like the idea that now, like when I look at the internet, people are having to tell white people like, don't wear blackface or people like I mentioned this. I saw I'm all over the place. I mentioned fine. something about there was a shooting at a Black Lives Matter rally like a few a couple years ago. And I was at the store and I saw another former or older punk who was a white guy, and I was like, I think it's a conspiracy. It's making me think of all these conspiracy theories from COINTELPRO. And he's like, I don't know, maybe it just happened. And I was, and I just like the punk part of my brain from when I was 16 was like going off where I was like, this doesn't just happen. Black Lives Matter activists aren't shooting each other. Like, this is a plan. I just, I feel like an eccentric weirdo on the street wearing a tin ha- tinfoil hat. But it's because I have a punk education in like intersectionality and different. Uh, radical groups um anyway yeah but also I think kids right now are very much cooler about gender than we were and more understanding about gender and I think it's not so bad that they don't have to work so hard to get the things that we had to struggle to get that's just how generations go yeah and I'm happy for that and I love that I feel I can draw a line between discovering like Les Feinberg's trans liberation in the bookstore and then going to see them speak at like an old mill in Lewiston, Maine, which is like 20 minutes from where I grew up. And it's sort of amazing that even happened. That's incredible. Yeah. And I just like went there as a maybe 18 year old or something. And now being like, oh, thank goodness. Like, kids don't have to like drive to some scary dark mill town to maybe learn about trans feminism. Yeah. You know, so I'm really happy for that. But I also hope with the activism and organizing that's going on now, I really feel like I was able to reconnect to that kind of intersectional thinking and organizing with post election 2016 stuff in my neighborhood. So it's really interesting because no one else really comes from a punk background in like my neighborhood activist group. It's a lot of native New Yorkers and immigrants and people who have been doing activism in New York for a long time. But I feel like I am better equipped to understand like how all the issues around immigration and discrimination and gentrification like work in my neighborhood, like thanks to this education that I got. Yeah. It's just, it's weird because we grew up and we don't have mohawks anymore. And if, if, you, if I had a mohawk right now, I would hope that you would pity me in some way for not moving forward fashion-wise. Um, we don't have mohawks anymore. Some people might see former riot girls or punks from afar and be like, oh, they're just liberals or they're just whatever. But it's not, it's not the case. Yeah. This education of zines and of like being in a music community that was adjacent to an activist and a literary community... It's really valuable. It is. It's like, I mean, it's life changing, I think. And I feel like I always, yeah, bring that little firebrand of radicalism to everything I do, even like the women's Slack channel at my work. And I'm, I think I was even reprimanded for like talking about Planned Parenthood, which is another whole issue. And oh I God. like freaked out. No one who di- was involved in that incident works at my company anymore. <laughs> so it's fine. But I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I can't be like, hey, here's a benefit for Planned Parenthood in our women's slack discussion. Like, this is not feminism. Yeah. You know, like, but again, it was that, I think that radical part of me as opposed to like a neoliberal, like choice feminist Mm -hmm. approach where it's just like everyone, and I don't mean pro-choice, like 
pro-abortion. <laughs> I mean, like, choice and that every woman can make her choice and it's fine and that's what feminism is. So you reduce, like, whether or not to have a baby to the same level as, like, do you wear red or pink lipstick? Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. I wanted to bring up, but I think we really talked through that idea of punk damage that you've brought oh, up a few yeah. times on your podcast um, and how you kind of have had to let go of some of those attitudes or worked through that punk damage while retaining this valuable kind of intersectional approach that we've discussed. Well, so there's a couple of things. So one is, I just want to backtrack to if we still had mohawks right now. One is the idea, well, this is a Michelle T word, which is queaked, which is you, you're queer peaked. So it's like people that had like their best year in like 1995, then getting stuck, like they're trapped in amber during that time and they still dress that way. So it's okay to shed the markers of your subculture as you get older if you choose to and to embrace fashion of today. You don't owe that to your former self. That person existed. They had a mohawk. It's okay to like you know, have something that doesn't flag, I'm smashing the state every minute. So that's one thing. But the other thing is queer damage or punk damage. So punk damage being this, this thing where like punks just like aren't ambitious. So they don't have any money. And so they get really tight with their money, but also there's an environmental aspect and an anti-wasting aspect. And I don't know if any of it is like glamorizing poverty or not. It just depends on the person. But it's like cutting corners a lot of ways that maybe you don't have to as you get older and you want to be a little more comfortable. Oh, like going on tour and getting a hotel or like getting a rental car so that you have a car that you know is going to work the whole time. And if it doesn't work, you're going to be able to get it fixed. and It's going to be easy. Life can be – there's something about punk, like what you were talking about, like the emotional labor, the working for free – there's something about punk that's like a little antithetical to having an easy life because what does that mean? I don't know. Well, it means I think somehow if you have an easy life, you've given into capitalism. But weirdly, it squares perfectly well with the Protestant work ethic. Isn't Oddly. that interesting? <laughs> but there is something. I mean, I know I keep bringing this around to like upper middle class people, like kind of like faking a poor front. But there is something to like to people. Like there's there's a um, there's a comedian in L.A. named Atsuko, and she has this joke where she's like. Uh, she she was an undocumented immigrant who came here and lived in a garage with her mom and her grandma, I think, for like seven years. They were undocumented and a little scared. And she was like, no, I don't need thrills. I don't need to defy death. She's like, I got plenty of thrills before. She's like, my mom having a seizure in the mall and us having to take her home because we were afraid she would get deported if she went to a hospital. That's plenty of thrills for me. Thanks. I don't need to do that anymore. And I think about that's how I feel sometimes. Like, I grew up in an uncomfortable way, and I think it's okay as you get older to make yourself comfortable so then so then you can still show up and do the work but as a nourished human being not like a codependent like husk of a person who's like the community the community like I don't care if all my organs fit like I would rather (laughs) be able to do more work for my community in a longer way in a more quality way where I'm showing up authentically without resentment than to be like a burnt out husk of a grouchy person doing half the work for a short amount of time because then I die of kidney failure because I didn't go to emergency. Absolutely. Yeah, and that is like an extreme example, but I don't think it's really that far off at all. Well, I mean, somebody I know who I went on tour with, a, a guy with a publishing company at the time who had this like very romanticized, like he called me a capitalist behind my back, which I think is wonderful. But he had this like idea, he was like, there was this anarchist publisher in maybe a different country or a different time, maybe in the 40s, I don't know. And he, it was, it was something about him not taking care of his health and then he died. Like he, he needed this life-saving treatment, but he spent his last nickel on making the anarchist newspaper. And I see myself like that guy. And I was like, get me out of here. I want to go, I want teeth. I want working organs. I can't wait to live indoors. Like, I don't, you guys don't all need that anarchist news. Read the one from last month. Yeah. And, (laughs) you know, like, and then you can't make more anarchist newsletters if you're not alive. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's so so romantic that you used your money for, oh, it was something the community had given him money to go to the doctor and he spent it on one last newspaper. (laughs) I would hold that paper and be like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen like just stay alive we, yeah. we can support each other it's okay 
yeah, and you'll be more value to yourself and the community. And this is where I think like, I know self-care, like emotional labor is another buzzword, but I do think for me, that's what self-care is about, like sustaining yourself so that you can make your art, show up with your relationships and show up for your community. Yeah. I I mean, not even just in punk, like in art world, I remember seeing a talk by this black feminist artist in Portland and she was like, here's my heroes. And it was like, bell hooks, this person, that person, this, it was all these black women. And she was like, now let's go into how their personal relationships were. And all of them, their personal relationships were like a tattered mess. And she's like, let's talk about how their health. And a lot of these people like, or they had like had mental breakdowns because they were dealing with race and they were incorporating race in their work and then being the spokespeople for really hard subjects and then taking it on and just continuing to work without pausing. So at this artist talk, at the end of it, she was like, and so white people, I'm leaving it up to you. I'm not going to talk about race anymore. And as a matter of fact, I'm passing the hat because I'm going to yoga school because uh, I need to do something for myself or else I will mow myself into the ground. Amazing. And I, I was like, that's so cool. I was like, that's sad and true about a lot of people I look up to. And I'm happy for this artist. I'm sad I'm going to miss her work, but I'm happy she's going to yoga school. I love that. And I think it's really important that she just put that fine of a point on it. Like, hey, here it is. Because I think when we look at all those factors together, you see how like oppression works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, we've been chatting for a while. I just wanted to ask a few more questions. We were kind of chatting at the beginning about how the 90s are back and they've been back for a while. But we see, you know, bands like Bikini Kill reforming and certainly Bratmobile. It's like 25 years since Girl Germs came out. What do you think is so compelling about this time for folks is it just all of us olds who maybe missed bikini kill the first time around who are like yeah and it's nostalgia or what is the staying power of this work do you think I don't know I I don't I mean to me it's hard because my lens is a bunch of like riot girls of Christmas past so like when bikini kill tickets went up for grabs everyone I know that's like pushing 40 or over 40 was like, I get my tickets sold out. What? You know? So I don't know if there's a bunch of young people that are clamoring for that, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah. I can't either, but I also am in the thick of it. So I'm trying to understand it for myself, but I think maybe, I think it is just because it was sort of this, rawness and immediacy that first helped me crystallize like what I was experiencing as a young woman and like put it in context of like systems of oppression and because I wasn't having the conversations with other young women so much around me it kind of pushed me to do so actually so I think for me that's where it is though there's also studies that show like the music you liked at a certain point in your life and I'm going to get this wrong but it's like teen to early 20s is like speaks to you at a formative part in your brain and that's why people always like like that kind of music and like think like oh you know bands from so and so were better and it's not that they're better or worse but that's because it like hit your brain at that time oh that makes sense or in that part of your like development as a human yeah I think that my brain could have formed around that stuff and it just was life-changing it just It'll always hold a special place for me because it did change my life. Like there was other music I listened to that was punk or whatever that just, it was just that. But actual like politicized women screaming holds a really special place in my heart. I think we're going to leave it there. Okay. Politicized women screaming. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me. Oh, and thank you, Ponyo, producer Ponyo. Ponyo's giving the um, new generation's perspective. The elementary, elementary school set. Looking forward to your band at rock camp. It'll be wonderful. So yeah, people, check out the rock and roll camp for girls wherever you live. It, you do not have to be a musician to volunteer. Um, you could teach zines. You could just corral little girls, and you'll be so psyched. You'll be so psyched. And like, you don't have to be total binary woman to go there. You could, you know, if you if you don't mind being under a woman umbrella, 
you could you could be a little flexy and maybe you could tell us as a way to close up any current or future projects that you might want to talk up well I don't it's very hard because uh, I'm in the middle of pitching a couple things right now so who knows but Sagittarian Matters comes out more or less every Friday you can find us on iTunes um, we interviewed both Ian Mackay and Kathleen Hanna and they referenced each other the interviews were about a year and a half two years apart but uh, you could listen to both and then be like oh you know what does he have to say because we talked about capitalism yeah. and punk and the intersections of that what is it like to interview kind of punk icons? And I think you're a cultural icon yourself. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's very nice. I, I don't, I mean, Ian Mackay, I was really nervous. To me, that's like, there aren't that many people I get actually nervous or impressed by, To me, especially like living in Hollywood. You know, you see like, you're like, there's Andy McDowell. And you're like, oh, there's Andy McDowell. Like, it just doesn't, you're like, who cares? Um, but like Ian Mackay, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I don't know what it, it's. It feels, I, I don't know. I always feel like that Chris Farley character from SNL who, like, whenever he's interviewing someone, he's like, um, do you remember when you were in that movie? Uh, cool. It, it feels a little bit like that. But also it's just, I also just know they're humans and I really want to hear them talk about these subjects and I've never heard them talk about them in this direct of a way. And so I'm, like, so happy to be facilitating that conversation. That's awesome. So definitely, folks should check those out and I'll put the links in the show notes when yes. I make them and people can support me on a monthly basis on patreon patreon.com slash Nicole J George's for like two dollars a month you get access to like hundreds of pages of unpublished diary comics for more you can be part of Ponyo's friend club what a deal it is a real deal and then I have some books coming out but just uh, follow me on Instagram or look at my website for updates on what I'm working on. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you so much, Nicole. Thank you. Thanks, Ponyo. No problem. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Riot Woman. You can follow Nicole on Instagram at Nicole J. Georges, support her on Patreon, and visit her website, NicoleJGeorges.com. For show notes and more information on me and this podcast, you can visit eleanorcwhitney.com slash podcast. And hey, while you're there, I'd love it if you signed up for my mailing list. Our theme music is Half Lie by Talleen Kali. You can hear more of her work and support her at talleenkali.com. Finally, if you liked this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. It means a lot to me, and it helps others discover the show. Thanks, and until next time.